What is up, freaks? It's your boy Marty Bent here to introduce this episode of Tales from the Crypt. I sat down with the CEO of Charity Water, Scott Harrison, to talk about his story, Charity Water's 15-year journey, how they're bringing potable drinking water and water wells to people all over the world who desperately need it in their mission to get everybody clean drinking water on the face of the earth. A bold endeavor, a bold mission, but they're doing it. And they're implementing Bitcoin into their mission as well. They have a Bitcoin trust, which they're currently uh, accepting Bitcoin donations for. They're going to put the Bitcoin in this trust and they're going to hold it until 2025, at which point they will begin dispersing it to bring more water, more clean drinking water to people across the world. They're going to hodl and then deploy for a very good reason, for a very uh, honorable reason, for a very virtuous reason. Truly virtuous, not virtue signaling. Actually producing water wells that are providing people clean water uh, around the world. This episode is really interesting. Uh, we focus on charity water throughout most of it and getting Bitcoin at the end. But Scott's story is incredibly inspiring and uh, it's, it's really, uh, it was a joy to have a conversation with him about everything that's going on. And my father-in-law just turned on the fucking leaf blower uh, out back, so I'm sorry. If the mic is picking that up quite a bit, I don't know if he understands how, how recording and mics work. Uh, this episode was brought to you by our good friends at the motherfucking Cash App. Cash App's helping you stack sats, send sats, receive sats, and sell sats if you so please. We're saying sats, 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 because sats are the standard. There's 100 million sats in one whole Bitcoin. You don't have to stack a whole Bitcoin or a fraction of a Bitcoin. You can stack whole sats instead and uh cash app makes that extremely easy you can dca that's dollar cost average into bitcoin that's where you set a set amount of money and you buy on a set cadence on the cash app and you do that daily weekly or bi-weekly they make it extremely easily uh, on top of that cash app can be your bank account they're offering account numbers and routing numbers to you freaks uh, so you can get your paychecks direct deposited and make the stats sat stacking uh more simple, easier. You don't have to go from a bank account to the Cash App. Cash App can be your bank account, straight to the Cash App, straight to stacking. On top of that, they have their Boost program, their Boost card. It's accepted anywhere Visa is accepted. So you can take that uh, and get sats back or cash back uh, and, uh, and and use that. You can personalize it. It's an incredible... I'm sorry, now the baby's crying in the background. This is an incredible ad read. Uh, if you haven't downloaded the Cash App yet, make sure you do so. Use the code StackingSats. That's S-T-A-C-K-I-N-G-S-A-T-S. You're going to get $10, and $10 is going to go to our good friends at Owls Lacrosse. That's Owls Lacrosse. Woo! 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 Owls Lacrosse. This rep was also brought to you by our good friends at Hoddle Hoddle. Hoddle Hoddle is here to bring you freaks a lending platform that is non-custodial, that doesn't take KYC, AML, uh, and is completely anonymous. You can uh, use your Bitcoin as collateral to get stablecoin liquidity. The way it works is you put your Bitcoin into a multi-sig escrow account, a two or three escrow account, where you hold one key, your counterparty holds the other key, and uh, HODL HODL holds the third key. Uh, the beauty of this is that you have visibility into your collateral throughout the duration of the loan so that you know that it's not being rehypothecated. As long as you're paying that loan back, with the interest, you are going to get your sats back at the end of the day, and you can track that over the duration of the loan. Uh, on top of this, it's available to U United States customers. Uh, one of the few products that uh, HODL HODL is able to offer U.S. customers, uh, our regulatory 
environment here in the U.S. is such that uh, we don't really like freedom when it comes to financial things and, and money and the monetary system and the financial system and the movement of money and the, the access to loans here, And despite the fact that we're supposed to be the freedom-loving country. However, the fact that this is a non-custodial product that leverages Bitcoin's native multi-sig properties allows HODL HODL to offer this to U.S. clients. So if you want to take advantage of it, go to lend.hodlhodl.com set your own terms, make your own offers today. If you are uh, an individual with a bunch of stable coins laying around, you want to get some yield on that. You can enter the other side of this order book, this marketplace, and you can lend your stable coins out for interest for a yield, if you will, to Bitcoiners looking for liquidity. So again, go check this out at lend.hodlhodl.com. That's L-E-N-D.H-O-D-L-H-O-D-L. Com. This rip was also brought to you by our good friends at Compass Mining. Compass Mining is here to get more individuals into the mining game. The way it works is you can go to their website, you can buy an ASIC. Great time to buy an ASIC with this Chinese migration, this glut of ASICs hitting the market. They're getting cheaper. They're getting cheaper, certainly cheaper than they were in the spring. Again, the way it works, you buy your ASIC, you, you pick your model, uh, you purchase your ASIC, and then you can... Uh, line it up with a hosting facility with competitive uh, electricity costs. So you, you, you buy an ASIC, you pick a model, you buy the ASIC, you pick a f hosting facility. Compass gets your ASIC, they plug it in at that hosting facility, and they begin streaming sats to a wallet of your choice. If you want to take possession of your ASIC, they allow you to do that as well. They will mail it to you. When you buy your ASIC, this isn't cloud mining. You're, act you're actually buying ASICs on behalf or you're buying ASICs from them, and it's dedicated to you. Again, you can plug it in at this hosting facility, but if you ever want it sent to your house, they will do that for you, your dedicated ASIC, and you can plug it in wherever you want, wherever you see fit. Again, they want more individuals hashing. Go check them out, compassmining.io, C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G.io. If you want to contribute to TFTC directly, we will have a special ref link in the show notes. All right, Compass Mining. They're getting you those cheap miners that are on the market right now. They want more individuals. They want more plebs mining. It's a great service. Again, check them out. You can use the ref link in the show notes. It helps the show. Or if you don't want to help us out anymore because you hate us, you can just go to compassmining.io. That's C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G dot I-O. Last but not least, this rip was brought to you by our good friends at Brains. Brains, double I, B-R-A-I-I-N-S.com. It's a team behind Slushpool and the team behind Brains OS Plus, which is mining firmware that allows you to stack more sats with your hash. It extends your hash, makes it go longer. The Brains team tells me that Slushpool, its update's coming in July. It's coming sometime this month. Where are we right now? We've been reading it for July 9th. They've got, they've got 21 days. Is that right? No. 22 days. 22 days. So it was one day behind. Um, to get this launched in July, they're just triple and quadruple checking everything in simulations to make sure it's a silky smooth transition when the update does go live. Meanwhile, the latest Brains OS firmware update includes full support for Antminer S17e and T17e, as well as some significant improvements to the auto-tuning for all X17 devices, and it's available now at Brains. Again, that's double I-B-R-A-I-I-N-S dot com slash OS slash plus. This is very important. For anybody who uh, has been running with this misunderstanding, and we need to clear this up, Brains OS Plus is compatible with any mining pool. You don't need to mine to Slush Pool if you're running the firmware. You can point at any mining pool you want. However, if you do mine to Slush Pool, you're going to get 0% full pool fees. So that's how they're trying to entice you to point your hash at Slush Pool, but you certainly don't have to if you're running Brains OS Plus. You can point at any pool you want. Since the network hash rate is at one-year lows due to the China crackdown, 
Now's a great time for miners to juice up their ASICs with auto-tuning firmware and stack even more SATs. For those of you that don't know how the firmware and Brains OS Plus works, it mostly comes down to the silicon on the hashing chips. There are very small variations in the silicon quality for every chip in the in an ASIC, typically stock firmwares that come with the machines treat the entire device as a uniform unit, sending the same frequencies and voltages through the hash boards. Brains OS Plus boosts performance by experimenting with different frequencies and voltages on each individual chip to learn which chips are higher quality than others. Then it calibrates to send more work to the higher quality chips and less work to the lower quality ones. The end result of this per chip tuning is more hash and thus more sats per watt of power consumed. Currently supported devices are the Antminer S9, S9i, S9j, as well as the S17, S17 Plus, S17 Pro, T17, T17 Plus, and the ones that were just added and we mentioned before, the S17e and the T17e. Next up are the What's Miners, of course. I'll believe it when I see it, along with the S19s from Bitmain. Stay tuned, TM, for more updates on the firmware and slush pool. And check out Insights, that's I-N-S-I-G-H-T-S dot brains, B-R-A-I-I-N-S dot com for content stats, charts, and mining profitability tools to stay up on top of everything happening in the mining industry. Woo! Enjoy this episode with Scott Harrison Freaks. Very inspiring story. Enjoy your weekend. Enjoy your life. Enjoy your family. Enjoy your friends. Love all y'all. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. Sitting here on the back porch studio today. A very nice July summer day here. Got a nice ocean breeze coming my way. Uh, And I'm down, sitting down, excuse me, with Scott Harrison, the CEO of Charity Water. and somebody who has one of the most interesting life stories uh, that I've come across. uh, And certainly one of the most interesting stories of anybody I've interviewed on Tales from the Crypt. Scott, welcome to the podcast. How you doing? Thanks so much for having me. It's an honor. Oh, it's an honor to have you. I guess uh, a little background for the freaks out there. Scott and I met briefly at a party in Miami at Bitcoin 2021. Uh, Scott, you explained what you were doing at Charity Water, particularly with uh, uh, Bitcoin and, and how you're trying to incentivize uh, Bitcoiners to uh, basically donate uh, so that we can get clean water and fresh water uh, to people who desperately need it throughout the world. Before we get into uh, the the Bitcoin aspect of what you guys are doing at Charity Water, I guess we should talk about the history of Charity Water, your story specifically. Again, like I said, having watched um, a, a bunch of your talks on YouTube throughout the years, uh, it's a pretty wild story. How, how did you get to... <laughs> Our charity. Well, yeah, maybe not the most traditional path to uh, you know philanthropy or you know humanitarian work. So, you know, uh, like you, we were both born in Philly. Uh, so I was born in Philly, middle class family. My dad was a business guy. My mom was a writer. And when I was four, we moved to South Jersey uh, to get my dad closer to his new job. 
And we moved into this kind of drab gray four bedroom house in the dead of winter. The house was advertised as an energy efficient house, which is fantastic unless said house has a carbon dioxide gas leak, which ours did. So we move in and we all start getting sick. And my dad and I are kind of just sleeping in the house. I was going to school. He was working long hours. Mom is 24 seven in the house. She's unpacking boxes. She's working in the basement. And on New Year's Day, uh, a couple months after moving in, she collapses unconscious on the floor. Uh, she was kind of the, the canary in the coal mine. And this led to a series of blood tests, the discovery of massive amounts of carbon monoxide in her bloodstream. And then eventually to my dad discovering the leak, the gas leak in the heater and ripping it out and throwing it in the curve. And, you know, from, from that moment on, uh, my life was kind of changed forever. Our family dynamic was changed. Uh, my mom wound up miscarrying and, and uh, becoming an invalid and never recovering and, and living her whole life uh, with a severely compromised immune system. Uh, effectively allergic to the world. So I, I went into a caregiver role at an early age. Mom and dad stayed together, which was was a real miracle. They had a deep Christian faith that they, you know, would cite for, you know, serious values of, of you know, you, you stand by uh, your partner no matter what, even if, even if she's an invalid. So my dad taught me a lot about integrity and uh, persistence and determination. And uh, I grew up in the church, that kind of good Christian kid who played piano on Sundays. I wanted to be a doctor when I grew up so that I could help sick people like my mom. And then uh, at 18 years old, I realized that New York City was only a couple hours away. And maybe I should just spend a little bit of time exploring life outside the rules, life outside church, life outside uh, the box and, you know, to really not um, not a lot of uh, pride at, at this point. I, I went so far off the deep end uh, over the next 10 years in New York City, picking up uh, every vice you might imagine. I became a club promoter that <laughs> was out drinking and drugging and smoking and gambling and you know visiting strip clubs. I, I basically uh, turned into this uh, decadent, hedonist, sycophant, uh, finding perhaps the 180 degree opposite from those values, uh, the, the spirituality and morality I was brought up with. And, you know, I had this kind of crazy life that looked very glamorous on the outside. I'm dating uh, the models that are on the cover of fashion magazines. I'm driving a BMW. I've got a grand piano in my New York City loft. I've got the right watch and, you know, promoting spraying champagne, you know, from the DJ booth on top of club goers. And yet uh, I'm morally bankrupt, I'm spiritually bankrupt, I'm, I'm, I'm a, a wreck, you know, a, a dumpster fire uh, of, a, of a human being. And it, it took me, a, unfortunately, 10 years to, to hit that kind of bottom. And I uh, started having some health issues, <laughs> maybe, maybe no wonder because of the, the lifestyle and really just kind of questioned mortality, faith, spirituality, legacy. And, just came to this very simple realization that if I died, my tombstone might actually read, here lies a man who got a million people drunk. And I had, I had contributed absolutely nothing to the world, not to the betterment of others. I'd lived only for myself. And, you know, long story short, this led to a kind of a, a, a radical life change, maybe act three, 
where I sold everything I owned. I quit the drinking and the drugging and the smoking and the gambling and the porn and said, I'm going to, I'm going to find my way back home. Uh, I'm going to find the complete opposite of my life and see if I can be of service. And that led me to a humanitarian um, uh, medical mission in Liberia, West Africa, as a volunteer at 28 years old, which was really where you know, my life radically changed. I'll pause there. I've been talking so long. <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's one thing we talk a lot about on this show particularly is the sort of hedonist culture that's pervasive throughout society. And that's why I love your story so much is that it's somewhat of a hero's journey, if you will, you, you, the way you describe your story, particularly when you hit rock bottom uh, after a decade of, of the club life. Uh, it's really inspiring and, and it's something that resonates specifically with me and something and a message I've been trying to get across on this podcast is like to focus on, I guess, that transition from you uh, sort of noticing that, that you were living a hedonist lifestyle, if you will, and the need to change, like, I guess, to focus on that rock bottom moment. Like, the, do you think you needed to experience that that particular feeling to turn into the man that you have today a family man uh running a a charity that's actually doing good work and providing uh others with uh vital um resources particularly water um and like i guess we could start there it's like is that yeah i think the extreme helped for me uh you know it was I mean, you know, Marty, one day half my body went numb and <clears throat> inexplicably. And I went and got MRIs and brain scans and you got hooked up to EKGs and nothing was wrong with me. But I think that was that was a moment where, oh, my gosh, what if I die? You know, do, do I do I believe in heaven and hell? Like, if I still do, I know where I'm going, <laughs> the way I've been living, um, you know, starting to kind of think about like, what if I died at 28 years old and this was it? Um, and you know, maybe asking those bigger questions. That then led to this trip in in Punta del Este, South America. And I just remember, you know, we were we'd rented this house and people were waiting on us and serving us, and there was a yacht attached to the house. And it was you know, my, my girlfriend was the most beautiful model uh, on the whole compound, and you know, everything was as it should be in this world of, of partying in South America for two weeks over New Year's. And I just remember the emptiness, the, I just remember crying out to God, like, you know, what have I done? You know, I mean, in, in some ways, you know, you mentioned the hero's journey, like it, it's kind of like the prodigal son story. I found myself in the proverbial pig pen, you know, covered in feces, wanting to go back home, uh, wanting to find my way back home to, to that spirituality and, and morality and uh, purpose. So you know, the funny story is when I when I actually kind of decided to make a change and go for it, I applied to kind of 10 famous humanitarian organizations that I tangentially heard of. And uh, everybody denied me because who wants a friggin' nightclub promoter, you know, on their serious humanitarian mission? So the only group that took me uh, made me pay them $500 a month to volunteer. Uh, and they sent me to the poorest country in the world 
that at that time had just come out of a 14 year civil war, a brutal civil war led by Charles Taylor and, and a bunch of child soldiers. So I really did find the almost opposite of my life. Instead of making money, instead of spraying champagne, here I'm with a group of Christian doctors paying $500 a month to see if I can be of service in the poorest country in the world. And uh, my, my role on that, it was actually a, a huge hospital ship. Marty, it was a 522-foot hospital ship with about 350 volunteer crew, and everybody paid their own way. So that was one of the ways the organization raised money to, to function is through its volunteer crew. And I, I signed up to be the photojournalist to take pictures and to tell stories of the important work that these doctors would be doing. And my third day in West Africa, I'll never forget um, being told that the government had given us the football stadium, the soccer stadium in the center of the city to triage the patients who would come to see our doctors. And a small advanced team had flyered the, the country. They you know, posted flyers and said, hey, if you've got a cleft lip or a cleft palate or a tumor or flesh eating disease or the rebels burned you during the war, you know, turn up on this day outside the stadium and our doctors will try to help you. And one of the most transformative moments for me you know, along the journey was this third day in Africa. And I remember getting up at five in the morning, putting on hospital scrubs, jumping in a in a convoy of doctors and nurses and surgeons headed to the stadium and i knew that we had 1500 available surgery slots to fill and we would we would actually hand out 1500 surgery cards and when we turned the corner uh, there were more than 5000 people standing in the parking lot waiting for us to open the door and, and i just you know that that hit me hard you know, realizing we were going to send more than 3000 sick people home without the opportunity to see a doctor because we didn't have enough doctors. And that year, uh, you know, I tried to focus on the hope very quickly and on the, on the 1500 people we were able to help, the 1500 lives we were able to transform. transform. And I, I finished that year uh, taking 50,000 photographs, many of them for the medical library, many of them following these uh, patients uh, their stories of transformation. I mean, some of them already would be ostracized as a volleyball-sized tumor grew from their mouth because people thought they were spiritually cursed. So they would throw rocks at them and they'd have to cover their face. And, you know, what they needed often was just a very simple few-hour medical procedure to remove a, a benign mass, uh, to repair a, a cleft lip, to remove a cataract, you know, to give someone their, their sight back. So it was, it was an extraordinary, moving experience being surrounded by these doctors who were selfless, who were living the most purposeful lives possible and being there to document it all. And the cool thing was I had 15,000 people on my club list. So like it or not, you know, you went from getting invited to the VIP room, you know, to, to spend $5,000 at a table and bottle service to then pictures of leprosy. Uh, of, of medical procedures where I was asking everybody to care and to consider giving money to this organization and, and maybe to even consider volunteering. And I realized uh, some of those people, you know, some people said, take me off the list, right? Unsubscribe, unsubscribe. I didn't sign up for tumors, but others were, were really moved and, and began to give money. And I realized kind of maybe the same gift for storytelling 
that I had learned and employed over 10 years to get people inside 40 different nightclubs telling a story that if you got past the velvet rope, if you, you know, went home with a cute boy or a cute girl, if you, you know, drank the best cocktails and sprayed champagne, then your life had meaning. You had arrived. Taking those same gifts and saying, if you care about others, if you are looking for ways to use your money uh, to end needless suffering, to use your time, your talent, um, you know, you have arrived. <laughs> uh, your life will have more meaning. So uh, it was two years that I did on the ship. And that's really the second year was where I discovered the water crisis. And, you know, almost by chance, even though this was a huge medical mission, there were a couple, well, there was one guy uh, who off to the side would go and build five water wells in the rural communities. He would basically go hook up five communities of a couple hundred people each with a well that pumped clean water. And I remember just thinking it was the most amazing thing. I mean, I'd sold, first of all, I'd never seen humans drink dirty water before. And I learned that half the country was drinking dirty water. And I had never, uh, I had never, I, I just didn't, didn't like, I didn't know anything about like, oh my gosh, people don't have water. And, and then you can bring people clean water and you get these unbelievable stories of transformation and health. And so I really stumbled into the water crisis. Oh, and then I learned that at the time, a billion people worldwide, one in six human beings alive on the planet didn't have clean water. So that was kind of, I just stumbled into water maybe as the root cause of so much of the sickness and disease that we were seeing. It turned out at the time there was a stat from the World Health Organization that said 50% of the disease in a country like Liberia was because of bad water and lack of sanitation. So one of the, the chief medical officers on the ship just said, hey, kid, you know, you could, you could stick with us and you could take pictures and help us get more people surgery, or you could go out and try to bring everybody clean water. And 5,000 people wouldn't be waiting for us outside of the stadium if they just had water to drink. And I was 30 and I said, why not try? It sounded so simple. And I came back to New York to, to start the organization. And it's, inc again, incredibly inspiring uh, and also illuminating about like how something as simple as water, something that we take for granted. I have a Yeti filled with water and ice right now that I'm enjoying just came from my refrigerator and something as uh, an in individual grew up in the Northeast section of the United States of America. I've never had to think about, um, but in, in something that is, is desperately um, needed in many parts of the world and in, in the, the journey that people go on to, to get water and, the type of water that they're drinking in some of these places is astonishing. I mean, you've shown videos uh, via uh, charity water of, of, of people pulling bottles of water out with leeches in them and they try to filter them out, but it's not always successful. Um, the, the sort of taking all this for granted uh, for people in the Western world is it's crazy how big of a problem it is, but how solvable it is as well. Um, and I yeah, think that's and, and that's that's worth just putting a point on money. I mean, so today, 785 million people, as we're sitting here recording this, are drinking dirty water. Uh, it's one in 10 people alive on the planet. And, you know, so many people here listening are, you know, deep into technology and 
uh, you know, as we think of and later talk about Bitcoin. I mean, it's, it's kind of crazy just to think in a world of so much abundance, uh, in, in a world you could even argue of, of printing cash, it seems endlessly, 10% of the world doesn't have water, doesn't have clean water. And the great thing, you know, and, and Charity Water is about to turn 15 years old, so I've been at this now for a decade and a half, is that we actually know how to help every single human being. So there's not one of the 785 million people right now who is beyond help. We can get everybody clean water. Uh, there's no silver bullet. There's no one size fits all solution. Uh, a lot of different things work in a lot of different environments and, and contexts, but no human being needs to drink dirty water. It's, it's not like, let's say pancreatic cancer, right? Which, which still baffles us and kills 90% of the people, you know, that, that come down with it or so, or, you know, there's so many incurable diseases where we're, frantically uh, deploying medical research, trying to find the, the cure and a test tube. Water's just not like that. You can drill a well, you can harvest the rain, you can build a, a, a filtration system, you can move. There, there are just so many different things that work and we know how to do it. We haven't created the, the movement to do it. We haven't uh, commandeered the global will to do it, but we do know how to do it. Yeah, and I, and I think again, what you're doing to educate people about this is extremely important. And I think one thing that uh, the message that resonated most strongly with me and, and something that uh, you have leaned into, and I think more and more people who care about this issue specifically should lean into is the, the effect it has on women in these areas and, and the amount of time that is wasted attempting to to just go and, and harvest water. Um, and imagine the the things these women could be doing if they didn't have to travel hours a day to to go source this this dirty water um, and then compound that with um, the productivity that could be gained from not having a bunch of people who are malnourished and sick from from having to drink the dirty water yeah yeah um i mean look i've been to 69 different countries now since since starting the org i've I've, I've been to Africa 50 times, 60 times, something like that. And it's always the women. It's always the girls. Culturally, whether I'm in Central or South America or Africa or India or Southeast Asia, the, the burden falls on the women to collect the water for the family. And I, I don't know what the stat is now, but when we started, I remember there was a UN stat that said 40 billion hours are wasted by women just in Africa walking for water uh, and, and most of that water is not clean you know they, somebody tallied it up and said that's more than the entire workforce of france every single human being working over a year in france does not add up to 40 billion hours so you think of time wasted you think of i realize it's slightly ironic uh, using france as an example but you know you think about like this global unrealized uh economy of work power economic power time turned into productive income that's lost because people are getting water that's not even helpful for them or their families. Yeah, so is that a, something that you've you've noticed as you've been getting these these clean water wells in the places? Is, is, how does it affect the local economy? Um, and what do individuals like the women who would have previously gone to harvest that water, uh, what do they do instead? Yeah. Access to these yeah, well, I mean, I guess the first thing, you know, I would just ask people to consider is just just kind of run through your day and imagine you didn't have clean water. 
you know, imagine kind of how we just use water and often take it for granted throughout the day from waking up in the morning and taking a shower and brushing our teeth or, you know, combing our hair, uh, running the coffee machine, uh, going to the gym or the yoga studio. Uh, you know, water is such a part of the fabric of our lives. And, you know, what we, what we actually see here is, you know, a, a woman might wake up at four in the morning and do a six hour walk to, to, to bring 40 pounds of dirty water back for her family and, and might not, you know, there's never enough water when you've got uh, a husband and you've got kids and you've got, you know, food that you need to grow and clothes that you need to clean and a, a you know, small home or a hut that you need to, to, to keep clean as well. So I think just the, the, the sheer amount of water, I mean, someone in the, the developing world might use you know, one fiftieth of, of what we use and take for granted every day. Um, water impacts health. You know, I kind of touched on that a little bit. You know, obviously impacts women and girls. It, it impacts the local economy. And, and so, you know, it, it is just, it's hard to imagine life without water, but yet that is, or without clean water, and yet that is the reality for so many people. So, you know, Charity Water for, for 15 years has taken a solution agnostic approach. We've got about 14 technologies now that that we, we employ across a 20 some country global portfolio. Often they're really simple things that work, Marty. Sometimes it's $12,000 to drill a well and tap into the clean groundwater right underneath the, the community. And, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a, you know, the water shoots out of the ground as they flush the well and you've got 300 people dancing, cheering, uh, splashing, you know, basically cheering the arrival of clean water and everybody knowing that life will forever be changed for the good. And, you know, we, we do a lot of bringing water and, and sanitation to schools. So there's a huge benefit there and kids go back to school. And this is one of the top reasons why teenage girls drop out of school is because they got to go walk for water or their school doesn't have water. And then they stay home four or five days every month when, you know, when the girls get their period and then falling behind in their schoolwork. So, you know, look, water, water, it, you ask what women do. Often women will use the extra reclaimed time to start small businesses and they'll sell rice at the market or they'll sell peanuts or they'll start a brick building business. They'll try to earn some extra income for their family. So it's just a great thing to do. And, you know, the, the last thing I'd say, you know, now being in this game for 15 years, Marty, everybody thinks this is a good idea. So it's one of the very few things perhaps we can agree on in this contentious divided world, uh, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat or a libertarian or an independent, you know, you're a Christian, atheist, Muslim, Buddhist, agnostic, everybody can stand for clean water for humans. You know, it's an inarguable common good. And that's allowed us to, to build a really big tent of people who believe what we believe that everybody alive on our planet should have clean water and drink. Yeah. And it's, I, I completely agree. I mean, it's hard to, disagree with the fact that um, clean water is good and most people should have access to it, especially if they have the ability to get access to it. I mean, it's you just get down the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Uh, I think everybody can realize and recognize that uh, water is on the very bottom of that food, water and shelter. Um, and, and you would have to be an evil person not to uh, want others to have access to that. Um, but another thing you guys do at Charity Water, it's very encouraging and 
something that you noticed early on is that people have a a very strong uh, distrust for charities historically. Um, you know, many charities are are yeah. known to get yep. funds pretty aggressively, um, and that's one thing that you. Uh, had the intention of fixing when you when you started Charity Waters, bringing transparency and helping give people peace of mind that if they were going to give money to you guys, that you're going to allocate it uh, accordingly and 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 within the mission um, as stated. And and so I guess how has that helped you uh, as you've been growing this charity for the last 15 years? Yeah, well, maybe just kind of taking you back to that founding moment. Uh, so this is 15 years ago, me at 30 years old, coming back from Africa after two years, completely broke because number one, nightclub promoters are not great at saving money. We're very good at spending it and spending other people's money, but, uh, you know, not long-term thinkers. And then two, I had just given everything I had to uh, the the medical group I was a part of and the, the people I'd met in Africa. So I was, I was literally living on a closet floor in Soho, New York for free rent. And, but, but again, I had this very clear vision of what I wanted to accomplish. I wanted to use the rest of my life to bring clean water to everyone. And not a hundred people or a hundred thousand people or a million people to every single person on the planet or die trying. And I had the advantage of being 30 and knowing people who worked at MTV or Sephora or Chase Bank. You know, I didn't know philanthropists. You know, I knew people who went to clubs. And as I talked to and my friends and, and acquaintances about this idea, I realized most of them didn't trust charities. You know, there was a cynicism, as you mentioned, there was a skepticism. I came across a USA Today poll that found 40% of Americans said they didn't trust charities. More recently, NYU did a study that found 70% of Americans believe charities waste their money, right? It's like, give one job <laughs> is to spend money well towards the intended purpose. So there was a, a huge lack of trust. And as I talked to people, I had a couple of big ideas. Well, first of all, I thought this was a market opportunity. You know, what if I could reach out to the skeptical, disenchanted and get them excited about giving? I, I believed water would be an issue that could do that. Again, everybody could, could agree on clean water for others. And then um, I just had this idea, well, what if I could promise that 100% of all donations we ever collected from the public would go directly to clean and drinking water for uh, for people uh, to, to fund these water projects. And in a separately audited bank account, I would raise all the overhead separately. So two bank accounts, right? The public bank account, the water bank account. If a dollar came in or a million dollars came in, 100% of that would go directly to help people in need. No overhead, no staff salaries, no office rent, no flights, no toner for the Epson coffee machine, I would raise all that separately. So that was kind of the first pillar. And then the second thing was just realizing with this two bank account model, you know, we created a non-fungible donation flow so we could use technology to track the donations down to their final, uh, let's say village. And we became the first charity just to put all of our water projects up on Google Earth and Google Maps. So we said, if we, you know, build 10 water projects, you're going to see 10 satellite images and pictures of those. If we build 10,000, you're going to be able to see 10,000 of those. So kind of proof was this second pillar baked into the organization and this belief that if you showed people 
where their money went, the people who were helped, people would continue to give, we could restore faith in giving. And then the third pillar was just this belief that for the work to be culturally appropriate and sustainable, you know, no dude like me from New York should be running around with a hard hat around Uganda. You know, this work had to be led by the locals. Uh, you know, we, we would go and find the local organizations who could take the money, who could operate drilling rigs, who could scale their organizations and lead their own countries forward. So, you know, kind of a, a, a local army of water hydrogeologists and technicians and drivers um, in each of these countries. So we put the 100% model together, this, this belief that if we proved where donors' money went, and if we worked through the locals in each of these countries, and we kind of took it out to the market. And day one of Charity Water, uh, I, I'm kind of sad to say, was, was a party in a nightclub because I didn't have any better ideas. <laughs> I threw my 31st birthday in a nightclub in the meatpacking district, and I charged everybody 20 bucks to get in. I lured them there with open bar. And uh, we took the $15,000 in cash we collected that night. We took 100% of it to a refugee camp in northern Uganda and we did our first few water projects. And then we sent the photo and GPS and even video proof back to 700 people. And we said, you came to a party. Maybe some of you don't even remember coming to the party, but you did and you gave $20 and here's what happened. Um, and that, you know, those were the first few projects. And, you know, fast forward 15 years, you know, we've raised almost $600 million now. Uh, for, for over 60,000 water projects across 29 countries for, you know, this year we'll, we're closing in on 15 million people with, with clean water. Um, really just trying to run that, uh, a variation on that theme, use 100% of people's money uh, directly for the project to show them impact, have stories of impact, and, and grow this, this local partner network. That's so incredible. Congratulations on all that. And that's another thing that really i think you hit the nail on the head is is depending on these local communities to take care of themselves right and that's like this is a bitcoin podcast we we're not big fans of the federal government because we believe that everybody in dc is so far removed from the local uh, economic information and flow of information that it's literally impossible to make uh, good decisions from a centralized location that is far removed from, uh, again, the, the flow of information, uh, the grassroots information. And so like partnering. I with think that's right. And, and let me just, you know, let me just say to that, like, you know, people ask sometimes, well, how do you choose the locations of the wells? That's all done at a local level. That's done in Malawi. That's done in Ethiopia. That's done in you know, Odisha, India. It's done in Cambodia by the local partners who will have kind of three to five years strategic plans of the areas and regions that, that have the areas of greatest need. That's not us you know, cherry picking any of that from New York. It's really a belief that we want to come, you know, we want to hire, uh, forge high integrity partnerships and relationships, uh, make sure we've got great audit practices, both on the quality of the work and the, the flow of money, but then really lean on that local expertise to make great decisions and, and empower those organizations to lead their communities and countries forward into the future. Yeah, no, it's powerful stuff. And that, I mean, that's what it's all about, right? It's empowering people and giving them the, the just the facilities to, and the ability to, to make their lives better. Right? Like I think if the white band from New York were to come in and, and try to just like run things 
uh, at a local level in Africa. It just it doesn't seem as genuine or as uh, advantageous to actually produce the results that, that you want, which is getting clean water to people. So they, again, it's like another decision that you've made a charity water is just extremely commendable and I think smart in the long run that's it's going to produce quality results for these communities and this is something I personally from uh, having helped get a charity off the ground in Chicago um, uh, it was called it's actually cash app sponsored this podcast and they matched donations to this charity outreach with lacrosse and schools um owls is the acronym and uh that's one thing i noticed when we were starting that in the south side and west side of chicago is that we we needed to lean on the local community leaders to to help us uh, actually understand how to communicate with with the kids that we were we were coaching yep yeah and and part of it is just kind of get out of the way right yeah exactly and 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 not only get out of the way, but like respect that this is a local community that has its own culture. And, and you, uh, if you're going to come in here and try to help, should understand that culture and, um, and work. Yeah. Perspective. Well, I suppose we should talk about Bitcoin, Marty, right? People are like, what the heck is this all about? Why am I listening to this? Well, uh, <laughs> so, right. I mean, this is, this is a Bitcoin podcast. It is, but we get into, to these philosophical conversation as well how did you find bitcoin and, and how why did you decide to integrate it into what you're doing at, at charity water yeah I, I got introduced to it in 2014 um by a guy named pete brigger uh who, who leads fortress and uh, i met wences cesaris and you know some other people you know back then didn't understand much about it but charity water has just we have been early adopters. We're interested in technology. You know, we made one of the first virtual reality films before there were even the VR cameras. I mean, we we put eight GoPros on a rig and took it to Africa and, and made a film. So, you know, Bitcoin was was interesting to us really in the beginning, just as a way of of collecting donations and uh, turning Bitcoin into clean water. I guess you could say, in the same way we would turn U.S. dollars or Apple stock into clean water. And uh, Tony Hawk uh, was our first Bitcoin donor, <laughs> and he gave us 4.8 Bitcoin back in 2014, and we promptly sold those Bitcoin for $312 a coin. And we sent Tony Hawk's $1,500 uh, worth of Bitcoin directly to the field, and about 50 people got access to clean water. So, you know, Charity Water's first use of Bitcoin. Uh, over the you know, coming years, because we were promoting this, you know, on our website and at times to, to different donors, we wound up taking in 569 Bitcoin. So quite a lot of Bitcoin. Uh, and we sold that Bitcoin for $4.4 million. And that's enough to get uh, about 100,000 people access to clean water. It's about $40 a person. So 110,000 people. So I'll just pause there because, you know, I, I think there, there are a lot of people on the other side of, of, of Bitcoin or critics of Bitcoin and say, what is the use? Charity Water has found a you know, provable use where 110,000 people got clean water through Bitcoin. Uh, that's you know, five Madison Square Gardens full of people. Okay? That's five staple centers full of people that have clean water 
because of us, you know, taking that Bitcoin and selling it at spot prices. And, and Charity Water was following best practices. That's what charities do. When we get any asset, who is the charity to opinion, you know, on the future of Microsoft stock, right? Or Amazon stock. The donor gives us a hundred grand in stock and wants to go build a bunch of water projects. We turn it to cash. We then turn it into local currency and we go build the water projects. So, you know, this is very much the best practice. Over the last kind of year, I started getting a lot more interested in, and starting to educate myself about Bitcoin, um, you know, watching some of the stuff happening with the US dollar, uh, the devaluing the dollar, learning more about, um, just learning more about printing money and inflation and, you know, thinking into the future. And just came up with this idea of, of doing it very differently, collecting Bitcoin, but promising to hodl for a full cycle, uh, at least four and a half years, uh, and taking an opinion on the asset. So that would be like, if you gave us Amazon stock, I would say, I'm not going to sell the Amazon stock now because, or, or Facebook, you know, it's a trillion dollar company. I think it's going to be worth five trillion five years from now. So we're going to hold it. Um, very, it's not traditional. Um, there was, there were a lot of meetings with KPMG and legal to, to even figure out how to structure this, but that's the very simple idea that I, you know, got to launch from, from main stage at the Miami Bitcoin conference, which is, we're calling it the Bitcoin water trust where we accept Bitcoin today. Uh, but instead of turning it into 35,000 USD, or, you know, if somebody gave us a 10th of a Bitcoin, 3,500 USD. Um, we are going to lock it up until at least 2025. And we are going to uh, hope and believe that appreciation will happen. And a Bitcoin today, which could help about, what, um, 8,000 people get clean water. You know, I believe a Bitcoin in 2025 could potentially help a, an order of magnitude more people get access to clean water. So we, we launched that from main stage. Um, very fortunate, Tyler uh, and Cameron uh, Winklevoss over at Gemini, who actually have known for many, many years, even back from my club career, uh, they agreed to match the first 50 Bitcoin when we got to 50. And, you know, a, 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 a generous match. Um, and then we've been out there trying to get as much Bitcoin as, as possible for this, for this kind of founding group. And we launched something called the Founding 100, where we're looking for 100 people to do a full Bitcoin. Um, again, you know, donate it today, take the tax deduction. Um, again, pay no capital gains, which is also, this, there's, a, there's a whole incentive of doing that as well. Um, not only not paying taxes on the Bitcoin that's donated, you're, you're able, uh, at least in the States and, and some other parts to, to claim the donation. Um, and then we're going to lock it up and, and we're going to open the trust in 2025. The, the last thing I'd say about this is we, we also intend to keep the native currency of the Bitcoin Water Trust, Bitcoin. So we're not thinking about this in terms of US dollars. We're thinking of this in terms of, you know, could we get enough Bitcoin in this trust by 2025 to go help 20 million people get clean water? Now, that would be about a billion dollars today. Um, but again, we're, we're hoping to even when we unlock the trust in, in what, four years or so to start spending the money as we build water projects in Bitcoin or spending the Bitcoin.
it's a beautiful thing. I mean, you've, you've, you've learned the lesson that many Bitcoiners, including myself, have learned throughout the time is that uh, if you hodl <laughs> over a cycle, you're going to have significantly yep. more purchasing power. And, and the fact that you're locking this up for the purpose of getting people clean water, I mean, it's just incredible. And I'm actually, I just spun up a, a, um, a donation address. So if you freaks want to donate, go to uh, charitywater.org slash Bitcoin, uh, and you'll be able to easily uh spin up an address to donate and i'm i'm putzing along yeah and and because i'm opening that's up. awesome right i really appreciate the i appreciate the generosity and and the gift and you know look we're gonna we're, we're showing right now there's i think there's 41.2729 bitcoin so we're getting close to unlocking the 50 match the minute we get to 50 they drop 50 and then we've got 100 bitcoin in the trust and you know you can see there people can give uh, using their name, they can give pseudonymously, they can give anonymously, you can give and get a tax receipt, um, depending on what country you live in. And, uh, you know, the whole thing is just going to be transparent. And and when the Bitcoin starts going out in 2025 and beyond, you know, we're going to track the impact as as well. So in, in some ways, it's such a simple idea. There's not a lot to it. Give now, uh, let Charity Water uh, and this trust take on the appreciation, let us create that story of Bitcoin uh, going out and, and helping, you know, we believe millions and millions of people uh, across the world. Uh, maybe we can even be helpful with, with Bitcoin adoption at some point in the future, you know, with some of our partners in Ethiopia and Ghana and Bangladesh and Nepal, Cambodia, some of the, you know, the great places where, where we work. But um, yeah, of course, everybody is, is, is more than welcome to, to please consider donating. Um, if you've got a full Bitcoin, that'd be amazing. If, it, if it's a fraction of one, you know, it's really about the participation. Um, as Marty said, it's just charitywater.org slash Bitcoin and, and everything up to 50 is matched. And, and we're still trying to get to that 50 number. I do not have a full Bitcoin on my mobile wallet. I just sent 5 million sats. Um, and yeah, I, <laughs> I, I highly recommend That's awesome. Uh, everyone doing this is a, a cause. I mean, it's important. Like, so I guess this is uh, maybe an interesting uh, topic to end it on. Like, what is the state of water security? Like, even in the Western world, like, there's a you, you hear stories of Michael Berry investing in water assets because he's worried that that water is feeding yep. uh, at a at a rate that is uh, alarming to him specifically. Of Bill Gates buying up a bunch of farmland on top of water aquifers for who knows what. Uh, that's like uh, one theme that that is starting to grow, at least in investment spaces and um, in the macro landscape is is water security and, and what things can we be doing even in the Western world to to secure water supplies and make sure that, that we have what, enough water for uh, a population that that is continuing to grow um, may level off in, in the next few decades. But like, uh, like, do we need to do more rain gathering uh, activities? Uh, do we need to um, work on harnessing snowpack water and, and filter, filtering that? Like, what are, what are some things that you believe we need to do more efficiently with water you know, just globally? Yeah. I, I mean, look, I, I'm, I'm much less of an expert on water domestically than, you know, in the, in the countries where we work. I mean, we are very much focused on the the developing world. Um, you know, America officially has 100% water coverage. Now we know that's not true 
there are certainly water uh, scarce areas, um, you know, in some of the Native American lands, uh, some parts of Appalachia. And I think we're seeing droughts, right? We're, well, we're seeing, you know, we saw Flint, Michigan, right? Very different contamination issue there uh, that required what over a billion dollars of infrastructure repairs and remediation uh, to, to, to get that water clean again. You're seeing droughts in, in California. So I think absolutely uh, will conservation technology is needed to conserve the water here. And there is a, a great group that I always try to shout out for people you know, who care about uh, domestic work. They're called Dig Deep, and they exclusively work on those communities in America that are water stressed and, and you know, have scarce water. So if that's something you're passionate about, you know, go check them out. Um, you know, the reality is if, if you use less water today, Marty, or I use less water today, it doesn't help a woman in Ethiopia not walk her seven or eight hours every day. You know, a well does not pop up in her community. Um, so, you know, there's, I think the water certainly, uh, we're all connected, right? There's a, it's kind of the connective tissue of the planet, but, you know, we've just, we've really stayed focused on, you know, trying to bring that seven, the current 785 million people without water number down to, to zero. Um, and there's a lot of great groups working on conservation and, and new technologies out here in the States for sure. Yeah. That's one thing I never understood is like why the government here specifically has like a, a aversion to allowing people to, to collect and, and filter rainwater. It's always something that's bothering. I never understood that either. I, I never understood that either. Um, I mean, that's one of the things we actually do. We work in the, the desert of, um, in the, in Rajasthan, in the Thar deserts, uh, where at least maybe until recently the hottest recorded temperature on planet earth was and there we can't drill wells because the, the water table is so deep you know you it would require a huge amount of energy to get the water uh, out of the ground from such a depth so there uh, what we do is we work with the communities and we build kind of giant um cement Water harvesting catchments worth of rain, and then pump it out right next to their house, uh, and it's it's protected by you know, concrete, so there's uh, it doesn't evaporate. So I mean, rainwater collection harvesting is is something that we employ uh, across our portfolio, and it's a it's a really viable solution in parts of the world. Yeah, we need to we need to be more. That's like another thing that we're really passionate about here on this podcast: being more efficient with. Our resources, whether it be energy resources, which Bitcoin helps on the mining side by finding stranded and wasted energy sources and utilizing them to produce blocks, um, but like water specifically, especially if there is an increasing scarcity in certain areas of the world, like we should be doing everything we can to gather and use as much water as possible to be as efficient as possible when it comes to uh, water falling and, and collecting it and distributing it to, to local communities. So I'm very pumped to hear that Completely agree. you guys are utilizing a uh, rain um, collection technologies throughout your portfolio because that's something that's never made sense to me here in the United States specifically is why the government is against. Yep. Um, yep. Scott, this has been an incredible conversation. <laughs> it's been fun. I guess too. Uh, Thanks for letting me uh, share. Uh, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. Honored to have you on here. I think the work that you're doing is incredibly important. And again, like I think 
it's an incredibly inspiring story going from the hedonist uh, party nightclub lifestyle to your, again, like a, a very dedicated family man helping others in a selfless way throughout the world. And I, and I guess to end it, I would, I would just like to ask you, like, how much fulfillment do you have now compared to that the, the time in your life when you're you're out clubbing, partying, doing drugs and stuff like that? Like, if there's anybody <laughs> out there in the audience who is in their mid-20s, I mean, I was very similar living in Chicago, New York City throughout my 20s, uh, definitely partied and went out and spent more money than I probably should. Uh, a lot of times, um, and since having a kid myself and dedicating myself to, to Bitcoin in this mission, I certainly feel more fulfilled, but, um, I, th- I think it's important for individuals in their twenties to, to realize that like uh, going out and clubbing every night is not necessarily the, the best <laughs> use of your time and money. Yeah. I mean, maybe put simply Marty, I found there's such a, a freedom in, in helping others. And, you know, I wake up and I say, how can I use what God's blessed me with to bless others? Sometimes that's time and mentorship. Sometimes that's my personal money that we're able to give as a family to 20, 30 different causes we support. Um, you know, it's time. But, you know, I look around the local community, the global community and say, how can I end this needless suffering? You know, what good can we do today? Um, it's funny, my family motto, before I even knew how this applied to the, the Bitcoin community, our, our family motto, I've got a almost five and almost seven-year-old, is how can I help? And my kids come down, you know, on, on very good mornings and say, hey, dad, how can I help? But you can load the dishes or, you know, you can set the table. So I think it's how, you know, in, in maybe how can we be of service? Um, how can we be perpetually of service? And when you shift from accumulation and you know, I was talking with, um, I mean, it's like, you know, I think sometimes that, that, that could, that could even be a challenge for this community. There's never enough Bitcoin, right? Everybody has such a universal long view. Um, but, but, but can we share, you know, can, can we share, you know, what is that enough moment when we can, we can be generous. So, uh, I, I think about that deeply and, and try to, uh, you know, try to, walk the talk uh, myself yeah and i think you're certainly uh backing up your talk with action you're walking the talk and yeah i think uh i think you mentioned water uh, is universally accepted whether you're on the left or on the right is something that that everybody can agree it should should be <laughs> uh accessible to to every human on earth and i think finding these uh these topics that bring people together like access to water and it just creates the ability to have more civil conversations as you move out from to more controversial topics that of the day that rule the day um so i think something like you're doing helps helps bring some more civility to to conversations which is important some common grounds some common grounds yeah agreed that's what we're trying well scott i know you've got uh you've got your family to get back to um I really appreciate your time. Again, the work that you're doing. Freaks, if you're listening, again, charitywater.org slash Bitcoin if you uh, want to help push the the uh, Bitcoin donations to 50 so the, so that the matches will start. Um, we're getting pretty close. Um, is there anything that you want to... Yeah, just, 
Yeah, the, the only other thing, you know, if people are interested in maybe, um, we've got a video online um, in, in another community called The Spring, uh, which is kind of our, our monthly givers. You know, think of that as Spotify or Netflix or Disney Plus for clean water, uh, where we share stories and content, but 100% of the money goes straight to the field. And there's a, there's a video of the charity water story there that's gotten about 60 million views across platforms. And that's that's something, that's another way people could help. You could go, you could um, kind of check out that video, see some of the images and, and video of, of some of the stories I was talking about and, and share it, share it with your colleagues, your friends, your family, your kids. Um, charity water is a very small marketing budget. So it's really, we, we rely on word of mouth and passionate ambassadors. So. Yeah, if you've got some Bitcoin, that'd be amazing to donate to the trust, but you can also just become kind of a, uh, you know, supporter of Charity Water through through the spring um, and, and check out the video. So that's just thespring.com. Thanks, money. Well, thank you, Scott. Um, keep crushing it. And hopefully we'll be able to do this again at some point in the future with some, with some even better news about, about people. I'd getting- love that. I'd love that. Yeah, maybe some cool use cases of, of Bitcoin uh, actually drilling wells. That'd be real fun. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely need to get an update. Um, we'll definitely have to talk after the 2025 fund is uh, is released and, and allocated. For sure, for sure. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining us, Scott. That's all we got this week, freaks. Peace and love. Okay.